Our reading this morning is from Galatians 4, 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing this glorious good news to us. I pray that this morning we would lean in and listen. We would have ears to hear. And we would have humble hearts to receive by faith the word implanted is able to save us. Father, help us to live into the fullness of this glorious good news that you've preached to us this morning through your word. Now fill me, Lord, with your spirit that you would help me come along behind the word and serve it afresh for our people, in our context, in a way that would, in a way that would touch us and move us to live out our identity as your beloved adopted children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I, I want to begin this morning uh, with no, no stories or illustrations. I just want to jump right into this text. This is a great text. It's got so much to teach us. And I want to look at Galatians 4, 1 to 7 under three main headings, or three main words. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline. Three headings. First, slavery. Second, redemption. And third, sonship. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at slavery, redemption, and then sonship. Now, so far in Galatians 3, as we've been hearing uh, in previous weeks, Paul has been very clear to teach us in Galatians 3 that the law that God gave to Israel, it it, it served only a, a limited and a temporary purpose. That's important for us to know. The law that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai served only a limited and a temporary purpose in the life of Israel. See, the law was given um, to help people realize their enslavement to sin in order that it would drive them to the Redeemer, to Jesus Christ, by trusting the promise that God had made to Abraham. 
We saw a couple of weeks ago how Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to Abraham. And the law was to show us that we, we need that. Now in Galatians 4, 1 and 2, Paul begins this section by illustrating for us the slavery that results from trying to live under the law. That's very specific language. The law, he wants us to think of it as a yoke that's, that's heavy, that's a, a burden that we cannot bear. And so he talks about the slavery, illustrates the slavery in verses 1 and 2 that results from living under the law. Listen carefully to what he says. The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now recall what I said a moment ago. The law served a temporary and a limited purpose. It taught, another way of putting it, it taught Israel that they couldn't earn God's blessing by keeping the law. Rather, they could only inherit his blessing by trusting his promises. That's another way of putting it. Now, Paul here tells us that living under the law is like being an underage son who stands to inherit a a vast estate. And the law, he says, functions like a guardian or a manager or a trustee over the son until he is of age, until he is old enough to inherit. Therefore, Paul says that during the time of this this guardianship, this tutelage under the law, Paul says that the son is really basically no different from a slave. He's not yet ready to receive the fullness of his inheritance. In fact, I, I think it's suggested here that under this guardian, there's actually some important, maybe even painful lessons for the son to learn in order to prepare him well to receive the inheritance. Now, I think I have a, an illustration, I hope, that will help us, uh, more of a contemporary idea, help us identify with what Paul is saying here. And let me say, this is completely hypothetical. Imagine a teenager who has just got their learner's permit to drive a car. Now, during that first year of driving, they are not allowed to drive at all without the presence of a supervisor with them. That supervisor is often a parent. So the teenager isn't allowed to drive a car. They're just not ready yet. In that first year, they always have to have a supervisor with them. And so if you could imagine a hypothetical uh, drive with this child, uh, the the teenager that has the learner's permit and, and their parent's supervisor in the car with them, it might go something like this. Okay, adjust your seat, check your mirrors, put on your safety belt, Turn on the car, 
Now, I'll put your foot on the brake. No, no, the, the brake is the middle one, not the one on the right. No, you can't use your, your left foot. You have to only ever use your right foot. Okay, now check your shoulder. As soon as it's clear, just pull out into the lane. That's right, good, excellent. Okay, and you can speed up a little bit. Not that fast, slow down a little bit. Okay, watch out for this guy. Okay, wait, stop there, let him, let him cross. Okay, that's great, good, excellent. Okay, let's keep going again. Watch out, you're veering a little to the, to the right. Watch out, there's a, okay, good, good. No, now you're going too far, too far to the left. Okay, that's excellent, good. Now, don't worry about that guy that's passing you. Okay, slow down here. Yeah, now put on your blinker. You're going to turn here to the right. Yeah, okay, that, well, 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 that's a little tight. Oh, that was, that was the wheel hitting the curb. Okay, don't worry. Don't get upset. Okay, watch out for that. Watch out. Oh, that was close. Okay, just, just pull in here. Pull in here. Okay, put, on, put, it, put it in park. Turn it off. Okay. Wow. Wow, Dad. That's so much more difficult than it looks. Yes. Yes, it is. But don't worry. You'll get the hang of it, and, and you, you won't need me driving with you all the time. Now, that was purely, purely hypothetical. <laughs> I'm going to hear about this when I get home later on. Now, now, you get the point from my illustration, right? Would it be fun to drive with that supervisor? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> In fact, I, I'd suggest to you it would be a form of driving bondage. I can't wait for this time to go past to get this person out of my car so I can enjoy the freedom of going where I want, when I want, how I want. Could you imagine it? You know, somebody's sitting beside you and always pointing out to you what you can do, what you can't do. They're pointing out to you every danger, every mistake, every problem. It's, it's driving bondage, I tell you. Now, after illustrating this slavery, Paul says, of trying to live under the law, Paul then takes that illustration and he looks us square in the face And he applies it. He says this in verse 3. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, and he's not talking about uh, our age. He's not talking about, you know, when we were under 16 or under 17. He's not using children in that way. He's saying, well, I'll explain in a second. He says, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of, of the world. Now, drawing upon what he said in verses 1 and 2, he says that the heir, before the time that the father has set comes, the heir is really no different from a slave. And here, what he means is that before, before Christ came and got a hold of us, before we put our trust in Jesus Christ, We were enslaved. He says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what Paul's doing here in verse 3 is he's connecting the the slavery that the Jewish people experienced trying to live under the law with the slavery that Gentiles 
experience before coming to Christ. He reiterates this idea again in verse 8. Look at it with me. In verse 8, he says, Formerly, there's when they were children before they came to Christ, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. There's the language again. You were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. Brandt will look at the elementary principles of the world a bit more next week. But basically what Paul is saying here is that apart from knowing God through faith in Jesus Christ, we're all enslaved. We're all enslaved to idols. That's what he means by to those things that by nature are not God's. And this is true not merely of religious people, but this is true also of secular people. As Tim Keller explains, to contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. But, he says, our contemporary culture is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthood, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessing of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? See, Paul's argument here is that apart from living under and submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, our personal freedom is an illusion. See, apart from Christ, we're all enslaved. It's it's like we can never escape that annoying supervisor. And that's, that's the world we live in, whether you're trying to keep all the religious rules and rituals or whether you don't even think God exists. Apart from Christ, we're all enslaved. That's what Paul is saying here. So that's why he turns to address the subject of redemption in verse 4. Listen closely. These are such beautiful words. He says, but. This is the contrast to our slavery. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what I want to do is just look at each part of this sentence to point out five important things. I'll do this quickly. First... The first thing he points out concerns the timing. 
In verse 4, Paul says that Jesus came when the fullness of time had come. This explains what he meant earlier on in verse 2 when he talked about that date that is set by the Father. Well, now this is explaining that. See, here's the thing. This is so encouraging. Um, God does not do random. There is nothing fortuitous. There is nothing haphazard about the work of Christ. Now, just let that hit you. Whatever is going on, if, if you're in Christ, there, there's, no, there's no surprises. There might be for us, but there are none for God. And, and nothing is happening to us that is not for our good, that doesn't come through the, the specific purpose and the specific plan to conform us to the image of Christ that the Father is working out in our lives. And, and if that's, that's true at every level, see, from everlasting to everlasting, God has been working out his sovereign plan of redemption. Paul says here that Jesus came at exactly the precise moment in history that God had planned out from before the foundations of the world. Jesus himself announced at the beginning of his ministry in Mark 15 when he said, the time is fulfilled. Now the kingdom of of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. All of human history had been leading up to, from from the beginning of the creation, all of human history had been leading up to this moment, this date on God's calendar. The date set by the Father. Peter Peter has this perspective too. In in Acts 2, he, he preaches this even more pointedly when he says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I could not put my head on the pillow at night and sleep soundly if I didn't believe this. If I didn't believe that that everything is under God's lordship, God's control, God's sovereignty, and everything is working out according to his definite plan, his predetermined plan and foreknowledge. God never improvises. God is not making it up as he goes along like the rest of us are. (laughs) God has set a date for everything that happens in history to happen. And the coming of Christ, Paul is saying, is the date. It is the date on God's calendar that determines the ultimate outworking of everything else that happens. Second thing. First thing is the timing. The second thing concerns Jesus' origin. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Paul is telling us here 
that God the Father sent forth his own beloved Son, whom he had known and enjoyed with him from all of eternity. He is the eternally begotten Son, as the creeds put it. Paul is saying here that Jesus is not merely a man. Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. God incarnate. God with flesh on. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity whom the Father has sent into the world for our salvation and our forgiveness and our reconciliation and we'll see in a moment for our adoption. The third point relates to the manner of Jesus coming. Paul says that God sent forth his son born of a woman. See, Jesus is not, I I don't know how you say it, not merely or not only fully God, which sounds ridiculous. Jesus is not only fully God, but he is fully human. See, like the rest of the human race, Jesus the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who has always been in the presence of His Father, the Son of God was born of a woman, like all the rest of us. You see, in the person of Jesus, just try and get your minds around this, in the person, the historical person of Jesus Christ, the infinite personal God is fully and truly with us, Emmanuel. He's become one of us. And that, that means that God is not aloof. God is not in some, at some detached and distant uh, relationship with us. He's walked in our shoes. He's faced all the temptations that we have faced. He's put up with frustrating people and all of the the annoyances and discouragements that we face on a daily basis. I can't help hearing in these words, born of a woman, that glorious promise that God made right after the fall that, that promise that God made that there would be an offspring of a woman who would come. The, the woman's offspring would come into the world to crush the head of the serpent who is the devil. And Paul is saying here in Galatians 4 that that is coming true now. That is being fulfilled here. All those generations later. Fourth thing relates to the condition of Jesus coming. It says that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is so important for the argument that Paul's been making all the way along. Here's what we need to know. Jesus lived under the law. He was born under the law. He lived under the law and he died under the law. And that means that he alone has perfectly obeyed the righteous commandments of God. He alone 
has had the right to stand before God and declare himself blameless. None of us can do that. He alone has completely obeyed his Father in thought and word and deed. Perfection. Sinless perfection. That is the life of Christ. So what that means, and I often say this from this pulpit, is that Jesus has lived the life that every one of us has failed, utterly, miserably failed to live. And that is glorious good news because through faith in Christ, his obedience, his faithfulness, his righteousness becomes ours. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how that record of Jesus' righteousness is credited to you when you believe on him. That's this good news of justification by faith alone. This is so good that he was born under the law. So what? why did God do all of this? Why did all of this happen? Why did God send forth his son? Why was God's son born of a woman? Why was God's son born under the law? Well, that brings me to my fifth point, purpose. Take another look at verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here it is, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul here in verse 5 is is revealing a two-part purpose that God had in sending his son into the world. First, he says, it was to redeem those who are under the law or redeem those who were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Christ came to free us from our bondage. The gospel is a message of freedom. The only way someone can think that the Christian message of the gospel is, is rules that crush you is to have never read the book of Galatians. To not understand the entire argument of the New Testament. The gospel... Being a Christian, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is freedom, not bondage. If if your mindset about what it means to live the Christian life feels like an endless set of rules, like that annoying supervisor sitting behind you in the car saying, don't do this, do that, slow down, watch out, you don't get it. That's not Jesus that was the law. That's why, that's why religious people are miserable. <laughs> no, really. I, you know, there's nothing worse. You know, they begin to sound. Have you ever known? Re- religious people begin to sound like the supervisor, don't they? Hey, don't do that. Yeah, stop doing that. A little bit more of that, if you please. That's not good enough. Who can live under that? That's bondage. We must never legalize the gospel. We must believe it, receive it, live into it. 
the gospel is the doorway through which we get to see and enjoy and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And until that begins to happen in our hearts, we're just going to be limping along like the supervisor has not left the car. We're going to be miserable. Where am I? As I've said before, well, Paul said it best. (laughs) Let's quote Paul, when in doubt. (laughs) Paul... Paul made this point already in Galatians in chapter 3, verse 13. He said, listen, let it hit you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Well, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, Jesus Christ paid a debt that he didn't owe. Because you and I owe a debt we could never pay. The gospel is a message of freedom, not bondage. But Paul doesn't stop with the good news of redemption, he slips it into another gear. Look at what he adds so that. So that we, yes, even we, might receive adoption as sons. See, freedom from the bondage of the law, that's good news. But adoption. Adoption into God's family? There is no better news. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Amen. And that's why Paul spends the remaining two verses on this glorious theme of our sonship. He uses the language, as as Jonathan explained last week, he uses the language of sonship, even if, if you're a daughter... Because our sonship is a participation in the life of God's own son. Our identity is now, Paul said this in chapter 3, verse 28, you're neither male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Because we're all one in Christ, the son. And so even, I'm addressing everybody this morning. We have this, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I'll look at that verse more closely in a second, but right now, I just, I just, you, you, you just look at it. Is it up there? There it is. Just look at it and let it hit you. 
Let it hit you. Let it grab you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer enslaved. God has reached out to us and picked us up and and brought us close, and we are now forever his children. There is no more glorious good news to tell you from this pulpit this morning. We're members of God's forever family. And this, once the penny drops on that and the light comes on, it'll change everything. You know the story of the prodigal son? Jesus tells this parable in in Luke 15 of a prodigal son, a bad boy. And basically, it's, you know, I'm trying to update the language. Basically, the prodigal son flips his father the middle finger, demands his inheritance now, takes off out of town, leaves the family in the rearview mirror, and moves away, and then just wastes all of his money. Wastes all of his money. His his older brother suggests that it's on prostitutes. He wastes all of his money, and he ends up, at the end of it all, destitute and starving. Doesn't go well for him. And then, so, as Jesus tells the parable, finally, this guy, he's feeding uh, pig slops. Good Jewish boy feeding pig slops, not kosher. And uh, finally, he comes to his senses, and he thinks, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home because my father's servants, the servants on the farm, are living way better than I am. And I'm just going to go and say, I'll be your servant. And Jesus finishes the story, and it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking because this is how he finishes in Luke 20, uh, 15, 20 to 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I just got to stop there. God is not waiting for you to come in and, and, and give you a beating and chide you and wag his finger at you. He embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That's us. We've gone from being prodigals, orphans, without God and without hope in this world, in bondage to the elementary principles of the world. We've gone from that harsh reality and shame to being warmly embraced and welcomed into the Father's family, adopted, forgiven, beloved, clothed, fed, and celebrated for. That's how the Father welcomes us into his family. 
Now let's take another look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Christ City, let me ask you, how do you know that you are a child of God? How do you know? Because this is Paul telling us how we know. We know that we are adopted into God's family. We know that we have right now the right to call God Father, not only because he sent his son into the world to die for our sin, but look at, but also because God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts. And we are moved by that to cry out to him, Abba, Father. That's how we know. You can really tell. It, it's not that difficult. How we talk about God. You, you know those who have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And those who don't. The language, it, God is not an abstract theological proposition. God is not somehow the answer to the mysteries and problems of life. God, through faith in Jesus Christ, is our Father. Christians call God Father. We, through Christ, have that right. And we now are His beloved children. So encouraged this morning, my son John, uh, I'm, I'm sitting right here, and John, while we were in worship, came and just sort of nestled up beside me. And I bent my head down and he said something to me and I said, that's the relationship. It would be a little weird if any of the rest of you did that. He alone, my kids can do that. The rest of you, let's have a coffee. (laughs) I'm an affectionate guy, but that's just weird. There's something unique that we have by the grace of God and we have to savor it. It, it. it ought to just blow us away. We haven't earned this. We don't have a... This is a gift. We have nothing that we haven't received as a gift from the hand of, of such a patient and generous and loving Father. <laughs> he's, put our, he's put the spirit of his Son in our hearts. This language here that Paul uses, this is intense language. This is deeply feeling language. This is the cry of the heart of every believer. We can't help but cry out, Father. This is exactly the language that that Jesus used when he spoke to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father. F.F. Bruce said that this is the voice of the Spirit of Jesus on the lips of his people. Abba is an Aramaic term of endearment and closeness, of deep family bond. And Paul uses it elsewhere, particularly in Romans 8. 
In verses 15 and 16, he said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, does the Spirit bear witness to your spirit this morning, that you are God's beloved child. Because if the Spirit is doing that in your hearts this morning, cultivate that. Allow the Spirit to remind you who you are. Because it'll change everything. It'll change absolutely everything. It's a slave that calls God master. It's a son that calls him Abba, Father. Look at verse 7 with me as we close. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christian message, the gospel message is a message of freedom. Freedom that, that God empowers us to live into and and to live more fully into. Freedom is not the freedom to do whatever I want, however I want, when when it, you know whenever I want. That's bondage. Freedom is the freedom to live in a way that pleases the Father, our creator and our redeemer. Freedom doesn't look to hoard, doesn't look to, to, to make heaven in this life, in this world. Freedom is the knowledge that in Christ we're adopted and our inheritance is kept for us secure, imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's awaiting us and we will receive it in all of its glorious, unimaginable fullness at the end of the age. See, whatever baubles we accumulate here, that's where raw rust and, and, and moth, you know, destroys and where thieves can break in and steal all that stuff and you've got to pay a ton of money in insurance. And it gets broken. And it still doesn't make you happy, even if you've got three of them. You're an heir. You're an heir. Stop living as if we're not. As if we're orphans who have nothing. Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places and we have every spiritual blessing in him. And one day on the new heavens and the new earth, we will be co-heirs with Christ, reigning with him. The Christian life only makes sense if there is an eternity that awaits us. So how should we live? Well, let's start with how we pray. Do we pray anxious, half-hearted prayers? with little faith, not sure that God is going to give us what we ask Him? Or do we pray confident prayers, knowing that we have the Father's ear and that He is leaning in and He is eager to listen? See, God loves to say yes. Part of our problem is that 
his answer is yes, but not now. See, the problem is not the yes part, it's the, the timing part. We're all very impatient. <laughs> We've got to pray. As we pray, as, as sons and daughters of God, we need to pray to the Father with great confidence. He's leaning down, he's listening, he loves to bless. Let me ask you, are you anxious? Anxiousness comes from, from, from not being sure that, that God is going to, to give us what we need. Jesus so often told us not to be anxious. God wants us to live with confidence that, that he cares for us, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that he will provide for our every need, maybe not our every desire, because most of our desires are wrong. Many of them, if my experience is anything to go by. Are we defensive? See, it's a slave mentality that tells us that we need to constantly justify our existence and, and manage people's perceptions of us. But it's the, it's the mindset of a son who stands confidently in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and is able to receive some criticism without being utterly destroyed by it. Do you perhaps this morning feel powerless to defeat sin in your life? Slaves are powerless. You can't break the yoke. Live into Live into the identity that you have in Christ as his children because Paul says that the children of God are able to put the the, the deeds of the flesh to death by the power of the Spirit. We can't break the power of sin without the Spirit's work, which we only have if we know we're his children. Finally, are we greedy? Are we hoarders? Do we love our stuff? Because that's the mindset of a slave. It's funny, if you, if you look at people who have, have been homeless and really gone without, and, and then they have an opportunity to, you know, where things are provided and there's, there's no um, great lack, they'll still stuff their, their, their pockets with the food and things because they're not sure. They're not sure. Is this going to last? But if we live into the freedom of being God's children, we know, we are sure the Father will look after us. We have all we need that he gives us and we will have everything with Christ in the end. See, our freedom is found, friends, our freedom is found in living into the fullness of our sonship by embracing our identity as God's own children. Slaves are are endlessly insecure about where they stand with their master. Is he happy with me now? Is he angry with me now? Have I done enough? Will I get punished? That's the mindset of a slave, of an orphan. But a son, a child of God, knows his father and rests in his love. They're secure. They don't have to earn their father's love. They have it. They just want to know their father more. 
and they just want to live in the light of his, his blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us the grace by the working of your spirit, would you give us the grace to embrace more fully this glorious good news that through Jesus Christ we are your children, we are adopted, we are beloved beyond question. Father, would you eradicate from our hearts right now by your spirit the the fears and the insecurities that we have, that we ought not to have. That's a form of slavery and bondage. We don't want to go back there, Lord. Refresh us, we pray, that we may live in a way that honors your name because because you love us, because you accept us, and because we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.